You're listening to the one-on-one with Juan and Only Sports podcast. I'm your host, Theo Juan. Welcome to season two of the podcast. This season, we're going to be looking at the stories and lives of the players, coaches, and personalities that make up the world of Ultimate. Each week, I will talk to a new guest, and we will talk about their journey into Ultimate, what their life in Ultimate looks like, their most memorable games, and a fun rapid-fire segment to end the episode. If you like the podcast, I would love for you to subscribe and drop a review and get the word out about the podcast to others. Your support is truly appreciated. New episodes come out every Tuesday. This episode is brought to you by Haddock Sport Performance. Is your training making you better on the field? If not, you got to check out Haddock Sport Performance, a premier strength and conditioning company designed for and by Ultimate Athletes. HSP provides each athlete with a truly personal and unique training experience. They work tirelessly to get to know who you are and what you need, and together with you, they help build a plan to be your best in competition. Check out HaddockSportPerformance.ca or HSP on Instagram to learn more. Now with all that done, let's go! This week's guest is Brett Matsuka. Brett is a national and world champion with both the US and Australia, who has had a long successful career playing for many teams along the way. At the open club level, Brett has played for Raleigh Ring of Fire, Denver Johnny Bravo, Chicago Machine, and Pittsburgh Temper. He has made it to the semifinals of the USA Ultimate National Championships four times, once with Machine and three times with Ring of Fire, as well as winning a national championship with Denver Johnny Bravo in 2014. With the American Ultimate Disc League, he has played for the DC Breeze, Chicago Wildfire, and Indianapolis Alley Cats and he was set to play for the Minnesota Windchill in the 2020 season that was cancelled. He was named an All-AUDL First Team player in 2015, and he was a Second Team All-AUDL player in 2014. Every team he has been on in the AUDL has made the playoffs. In Australia, Brett played for the University of Queensland, winning a national championship, and he was an MVP for Nationals in 2007 with Brisbane Firestorm. He also won a world title with the Australian Open Beach team in 2007. With Team USA, Brett has been to three Beach World Championships, winning gold each time. And he was an alternate for the World Games team in 2013. In 2016, he helped the mixed team win a gold medal at the World Ultimate and Guts Championships. In 2018, Brett won a World Masters Club Championship with Raleigh Boneyard, and he came in third with Johnny Bravo at the World Ultimate Club Championship in 2014. He has been to Russia, the UK, and Ukraine, coaching Ultimate, and he currently is the coach of the NC State women's team, Yagamonsta. Brett currently resides in Raleigh, North Carolina. Here is my interview with Brett Matsuka. Alright, so I'm here with Brett Matsuka. As you just heard in the bio, he has a lot of accomplishments, playing for a lot of different teams, so really excited to hear about his experiences in the Ultimate world. So, Brett, how you doing all the way from North Carolina there? Doing well. I'm excited to be here. I'm sad for you that you you had to, like, slum it up and get someone like me on. Not one of those good players. So, sorry that, you know, off week, apparently, ratings are probably going to drop, but that's cool. I respect that sometimes you got to go to the little guy, both literally and figuratively. <laughs> I do appreciate that. I know uh, you're not the tallest in stature, but in terms of your accomplishments, Brett, You've uh, done a bunch of things in Ultimate, so we're going to talk about that. We'll start all the way back. Let's see if you can remember your first time ever hearing about Ultimate and just finding out of the, about the sport. So what got you into the sport? Yeah, I, I think I'm similar to, to Goose if I listen to his appropriately. Like the first time I ever heard about Ultimate Frisbee was actually at Bible camp. There were the choice between kind of tetherball, beach volleyball, <laughs> a lot of cool things. But yeah, I mean, it was... It's the classic intro story. If there was like an 80s movie about it, same old, same old, basically, you know, big field, 20 some people past that tree is a goal over the gully is a goal. You lose a few players into the water. No. <laughs> but yeah, so we just, I mean, it was, like, it was the classic game where when you caught the disc, you're, you're supposed to stop, but then you get two steps. So if someone was marking you and you couldn't throw it, you would like hop twice and then throw. So it's pretty legit. <laughs> And uh, yeah, it was like my first ever intro to Frisbee. And it's a good time. It's like a warm, sunny day. 
I always thought about it similar to how I guess I think about golf or other sports. It's like we can hang out right now, you and I talking, living the dream. And then every so often we kind of hit a ball on a golf course. Like Frisbee is like, hey, we're, we're outside. We're hanging out. Might as well throw a disc and run around. So in that first event of you playing ultimate, were people wearing cleats or was it like barefoot, bare bones, 10 on 10, kind of just like chaotic ultimate as you know? Yeah, for sure. No, no cleats. It was, it was like barefoot, flip-flop shoes, come as you are. People were probably in jeans. It was like a, a swampy field in some spots. I mean, there were trees. You got to avoid it. Obstacle ultimate a bit. I would say, I don't remember how many people, but it was definitely more than 10 on 10. Probably wasn't even fair teams. It was probably like 13 on 11. And all the good players like stacked together kind of thing. Sounds about right. And then in terms of your first foray into actual competitive or just organized ultimate what was that like i always feel like the progression so i mean bible camp was first time ever really knowing about the game and it was it was pretty fun i i love activities so it wasn't there's no downside there in high school we like a group of us nerds dabbled with it so we'd play a little more structured but it was more like four on four on a pretty bad field anyone that goes to hawaii the big island go to hawaii preparatory academy and go up to anna's field that's where we played and it was a pretty mean field. <laughs> but there we, we had like a little more appropriate rules, a little more structure. It's still not real, but that's leading into undergrad then when you get introduced. Well, back when I started playing, that's generally when people would get introduced. Seven on seven, regulation field, tactics and things. We didn't really have a, a force. <laughs> we didn't have any of the, what would probably be the basics for structured ultimate, but yeah, and so you uh, played in university as well. As I note in the bio, you played both. Well, you played university in Australia, and you also played for NC State. So is that kind of where you got your competitive start in Ultimate and start to see that this might be a sport you want to pursue later on in your life kind of thing? I mean, I would say in Australia. People close to me probably know this. I consider myself an Australian Ultimate player that lives in the U.S., but like that's where I honestly learned to play for the most part. My mentors and who... I looked up to and the people that actually helped me learn the game. I mean, like Alistair Don, my best mate, John McNaughton. We were actually more competitors. I don't think he particularly liked me. I was a bit obnoxious when I started playing. I came from a pretty competitive tennis background. And so, you know, an individual sport where you have to kind of hype yourself up. So I'd I'd do some pretty, (laughs) pretty obnoxious things. But yeah, like Jonathan Potts, who was the captain of the Australian team, moved to Brisbane. He, he helped me. Mike Neal, who's just a phenomenal player. We're actually mostly competitors as well. We rarely got to play each other. He played at the uh, Queensland University of Technology when I started helping out with the uh, University of Queensland. So amazing players. So, yeah, those were Matt Bovink, who maybe people in Australia know. He's pretty much who I would give most credit for like getting me into the game. There was a, a high-level game in Brisbane, and uh, some of us kind of like new up-and-comers. I was an American there, so I mean, he he took a few of us under his wing and got us a team in the league. We were basically, it was an open league, but we were basically a mixed team. We had three okay. women on our like 12-person roster, so we'd, we'd try and take on the big guns. I think that first league, we maybe didn't win a game, <laughs> and then in the basically everyone makes the bracket, and I think we actually made it all the way to the finals, so like he really helped us develop and take know a good long term view on how to how to improve as opposed to trying to play every game to win so yeah good advice for even now as a as you are a coach as i mentioned there in the bio and so what led you to school out there in australia you just uh, didn't want to stay in the states there for school or or what were you thinking uh moving all the way to australia then and becoming an australian ultimate player as you said <laughs> gosh this is actually a somewhat funny story. I was originally, I wanted to be a music major. So I play, I play electric bass, upright bass, uh, some guitar, trumpet, French horn. So I love music. So I went to a pretty fancy hody toady high school, uh, Hawaii Preparatory Academy, go Kamakani. And yeah, so a lot of my friends were applying to like MIT, Carnegie Mellon. I applied to a lot of different places for kind of music schools. I really wanted to go to Johns Hopkins they had Peabody Conservatory. I wanted to combine music performance and kind of audio engineering and do maybe like making instruments or like audio engineering and recording. But basically I, I got into a lot of universities. I think I got like waitlisted at Dartmouth. 
I think I got into Johns Hopkins, but not into the conservatory. I wanted to do jazz performance, not uh, not classical. I didn't really play with a bow upright. I just, I thump. I'd be in the musical in the pit band. Yeah, just slap bass. I love Slap in the bass. I like it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I didn't get into any of the jazz schools because I, I'm self-taught. So I didn't have kind of the the chops, the, the music theory, just the training. I remember... This is like a really devastating story, actually. I flew to Johns Hopkins for an audition. So I, I remember in Hawaii, formal wear is khakis and a Hawaiian shirt. And uh, I dressed in my best khakis and Hawaiian shirt going to the audition. And I remember getting to Peabody Conservatory. It was winter time, might have been January or February. My, my family flew with me and I get there and I walk in with my bass in hand. I bought an upright just to keep training and getting good experience with the, with the fretless and uh when I walk in, everyone was in like suits or tuxedos. They're like music instructor in hand. And I was just me alone. It was a pretty eye-opening experience. Felt very out of place. I can tell you that, that the audition did not go well. Pretty devastating experience to just be uh, feel that that out of place. And yeah, so I mean that was that was somewhat telling. I, I haven't stopped music. I still play. I have a guitar right here actually can't get enough of it but yeah so I ended up once I didn't get into any of the music schools though I got into the institutions I just prayed because I didn't really know what direction to go so honestly there were six schools and I had a, a die and I prayed and rolled it four or five times you cast it lots is what you're saying <laughs> yeah man and uh, actually funny enough I did not end up at the University of Queensland I ended up going with one semester to University of Redlands in Southern California. Uh, my best friend from high school and I both went there, but that's what came up, I think four or five times in a row. I was like, I'm just gonna have faith and I'm gonna go there. But after one semester there, it didn't seem like the right fit. But as you know, the American semester, if you get done in December, it's hard to transfer by January. And so I just knew that it just wasn't the right fit for me, but I applied to University of Queensland kind of as a joke with some friends because it was closer to go there than it was to the East Coast. And I uh, found out I got in around that same time when I was knowing that I wasn't coming back to Redlands and their semester started in March. So I, I just decided I don't want to fall behind. So I'll just do a semester UQ and uh, figure it out from there. But it was actually pretty great. So I just, I stayed. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, learning a lot about you, Brad. First of all, I didn't know you were from Hawaii, so I'm sure many listening to the audience are jealous that you grew up with uh, the sweet weather that is Hawaii weather. And uh, funny note that it's actually closer for you to go to uh, a school in Australia than it is to to go to the East Coast. I know, uh, joking a little bit there, but so the things that you learned in Australia, you're able to bring back, as you said, as an Australian ultimate player into the U.S., so what was your first competitive team that you played on? And what did that teach you to get you ready for the long, successful club career that you've had? I mean, I worked my way up the ranks. I generally, in most of my sporting career, got cut from things. But I, so like with tennis in high school, I picked up tennis late, but I loved it. And I, we were supposed to, you're required to do sports at HPA. And so I did rec tennis for one of the terms which is you can't get cut from, but I actually got cut from rec tennis, <laughs> which again was pretty disheartening. I ended up that same year though, making the varsity team and being number one doubles. So in my free periods, I would just keep going to play tennis because I, I just enjoyed it. You know, I feel like that's a recipe for success. If you love you know, the, the cliche, if you love something, you never work a day in your life. Same with Frisbee. I think when I got to Brisbane, I really enjoyed Frisbee. I probably, I mean, I just like any new kind of player. I didn't have maybe the chops, all the experience, all the knowledge, but I, I was passionate. So I, I didn't make teams early on, but I managed to just keep working my way up the ranks. So the first team, when I got to Brisbane, it was the Brisbane Buggas, which is a, like a crawfish in the Morton Bay area. And uh, so that team disbanded. There was then they started Nuffle, which was the National Ultimate Frisbee League. And it's actually a really interesting idea. Their idea was to try and start competing with the US. And so what they did is they formed the top five or six teams from nationals. They would get to create a core. And so maybe the top 14 players and then the rest of the players that participate in nationals would get drafted. 
then they would fly to like Sydney. They would have kind of this national league and you'd play the top six teams would go there. They would draft 14 more players mm-hmm. from everyone else. And it was a chance to create this really high level Frisbee to kind of prepare for the next level. And the goal, I, th- I think there was like a four year plan to prepare for worlds in Vancouver. And it was a really neat, neat experience. So the Brisbane had a team for that, which was the Brisbane Buddhas. And in between there, there were buggers was around. And, and then I think I played for Dojo Mojo, which was kind of like the, the B team. We ended up beating the A team though, multiple times. Jim Mack and I joined, it was a good group. And then finally, I think from that experience in 2005, when we the B team beat the A team, I think 06 is when Firestorm was made. And it kind of brought the culmination of talent together. That group ended up becoming, I think, uh, Mammoth, which won nationals two or three years ago, Brisbane, I think for the first time ever. So it's, it's just really cool to see. I mean, I, I love Brisbane Ultimate. They're my, they're my crew. Shout out to the B-Town, Bris Vegas, baby. Big shout outs. You've already given a few early on this interview. So we're going to fast forward a couple of years now into 2008. That's your first time playing with Raleigh Ring of Fire. And you made quarters, as I'm looking here in the research, you made quarters from 2008 to 2011. So your first few years on that team, you're making quarters at the USA Ultimate National Championships. Some would argue, I agree with this statement, that's the hardest tournament to win in Ultimate. And so what was that like being more or less a younger player than joining up with this high-level team and playing at some pretty big-level games, right, at Nationals and throughout the season? It was an experience for sure. Because, I mean, back when I started playing, there was no media. It was kind of a neat time because generally you would just it's like the 1800s or even older where stories were passed down of players. You would hear folklore of American players, but you couldn't ever see it. You would just hear these stories. And like, that's how great players were known is that you'd make memorable enough plays that people would talk about it and it would spread through the community. Sounds like caveman times. Yeah. And then there'd be a like rec sport disc back in the day. RSD. Yeah. Would post on there about some like this player. So, I mean, with the advent of Ulti World and Sky and, reddit and just how much film there is you can hear and know about anyone pretty easily uh but yeah it was interesting because back then alti village just started disc one and so like we bought that and we would watch it like once a week (laughs) because it's it was frisbee was the only thing you had and it was just amazing i remember we watched that was the year sakai won it was 04 nationals and it was like ben wiggins chase nord sammy ck i mean these I can name so many of them because we'd watch the DVD over and over. In 05, we went to Kaimata Classic and there was a team Voltron there and it was just pretty much Seattle Sakai. I taught my high school. Uh, my best friend, Will Curb and I kind of came back in our free time and, and taught the high school to play. And we took them to Kaimana and we played Voltron in one of the rounds. And our goal was just to score. We had people on the high school team who'd never, never played a sport before. We got it to the end zone twice, and I think we dropped it in the end zone. Oh, you hate to hear it. We lost 15-0. So my, like, growing up playing Australia, like, you know, I just, I would set goals and uh, generally meet them. I would just, one day, would like to play nationals. That was it. Just make U.S. nationals would be the dream. And uh, so I made ring. I was really excited because you just never know. Back then, you, you couldn't, you know, there weren't as many international competitions and opportunities, so... I would look at those videos and think, wow, those guys are way better than me. Hopefully one day I just get to play them. And it was cool to play them at Kaimana. Uh, but making ring was pretty huge. I was really young still. Played on the D-line. I love defense. <laughs> so it was pretty fun. And it was that was back actually in the old format as well. Because the old the new format is a lot easier to win. The old format was was actually a pretty grueling. Oh, power pools. You're talking power pools. You would have the three games on day one. And then you would go from there into either the upper pool or the lower pool. And generally, you still had extremely important games to play on day two. And then if you lost, you potentially have three games day two just the bracket. And so you'd basically, if you went into the power pool, you just had to win one game, depending which game it was, and you'd make the bracket. If you lost both, then you'd be in the pre-quarter and it'd be like the showcase game for the day. And so most of the time through my early career, I think three of the four years that we made quarters, we went through the power pool. One of the times went from the lower pool, won all the games, and then went up into the play-in pre-quarter and won that to make quarters. 
six games to be in the bracket and then you're playing the winner of the power pool. So you're playing a one seed. It was a good format because with the power pool, you'd play two or three teams. And then when you, wherever you finished up in the power pool in the bracket, you'd be basically facing off against the other power pool team. So you basically would have to play everyone and in some way probably defeat them to win as opposed to the new format, you know, a team's unlucky and they're just, they could be eliminated and you kind of just lose that opportunity to have to beat a top team. I mean, there were some minor controversies in terms of the format. A couple of years ago, there was the format of everyone makes pre-quarters. You probably remember that. And yeah. that was not uh, something people were a fan of. But even now, you can be eliminated on day one, of course, if you lose all your pool play games like Sockeye did one year. Uh, they did that. And, and then, of course, they go on and win in 2019. But it's definitely a different format now, which is quite interesting as the sport has evolved, as the coverage of the sport has evolved as well. So... Playing with Ring, you make the semifinals then in 2012. So that's like, I mean, that's not an ESPN just yet. The ESPN deal hasn't happened yet from my knowledge. So that's still a couple years away in terms of being on ESPN or ESPN3 or whatever. But what was that like playing in the semifinals? It was huge. It was actually a really weird tournament because it was one of the, it's like one in every three years in Sarasota because you always went to the, the same fields there it'd be super windy. And this was one of those super windy years. I wouldn't say we were necessarily a great wind team, but we would back then, Ring was actually pretty cognizant of understanding what we're going into. So we would generally do like two practice weekends in Wilmington in very windy conditions to prepare. We're a very together team. Like the current Ring renditions have a lot of just youth and experience already. And they, they generally seem to be more centered around UNC's success. Back then we had guys from Duke, App State, UNC Greensboro, NC State. Smaller schools, yeah. And we just had like, it was just a culmination of the area's talent, an interesting community. I think we ended up playing a lot of the same teams. We ended up beating Machine, which back then we always did. <laughs> That's another thing uh, Goose talked about as well, playing on. It's funny because both of you now, uh, ironically enough, have been part of that rivalry, right? Because you played for both Machine and Ring of Fire because that's a little thing. There was a little spat, of course where uh, one guarantee is that Machine doesn't beat Ring at, at Nationals, right? And uh, that obviously changed a few years later. <laughs> yeah, we were on that as well. <laughs> yeah, so we played Machine in pool play. I forget, we had Revolver Machine. I forget the third team, because I think I think we just kind of dumped on them. But uh, And then I think we had, we ended up basically having Sockeye in quarters. We heard through the grapevine that they intentionally, in power pools, lost a game to have us as their is our quarterfinal matchup. And there was just this quiet confidence and calm before, like at the end of, what would it be, Friday when we knew we had them. I think everyone on ring was was already like, oh, we're, we're going to be in semis. It was just a weird kind of atmosphere to be in, but it was really cool. And going into that game, we just, we came out and we played just extremely well. A lot, I mean, it was a very upwind, downwind game. And I think we ended up winning by... 15-10 or 15-11. I mean, it wasn't, it ended up not being as close as you'd expect. They, we had good tactics and just kind of, we it was like the, the Super Bowl recently. I, I really thought the Chiefs were going to pull it out and it's just, you know, the underdog team seemed to be a little more prepared. But yeah, it was, it was neat. The sad thing is we went into that semifinal or yeah, so we beat Sockeye in quarters, amazing game, pretty excited to be in the, in the semis, playing revolver, but, you know, had had swag. It's going to be windy, but we just beat Sockeye. So, like, anything's possible. And then uh, I'll never forget early in the game, we we had, like, four or five guys that could reliably throw up wind. And so we had to kind of make sure there's always two on each upwind line. And Dave Snoke was one of them. I mean, I love that guy. Great player. Super experienced. Hopefully someday can maybe make the Hall of Fame. I, I back him. <laughs> and uh, Bo had just a a terrible bid and basically tore his ACL and that that kind of crushed us since that was one of our four really reliable upwind throwers and so we just we started just I mean they were already more talented than us the reality and uh it was going to be a, a hard game with everything going our way but you know you you never count yourselves out you put your best foot forward you play the the percentages and anything's possible in one game in a series they probably beat us nine out of ten but you, you got to know this could be the one but yeah, when we lost Snoke, that was pretty disheartening. I mean, he that was, I think, early, like midway through the first half, but I think they ended up beating us 
one of those two. And after he went down, there was, I kind of let the wind out of our sails, a little deflated. At least I will personally admit that it was also more tiring because I had to play more bit of a dog fight. So, but what you said earlier about the sockeye thing is quite interesting. Do you think that the quote unquote grapevine that you heard it from was actually someone on ring just trying to like fire you guys up or you actually genuinely believe that they were trying to throw that game to play you? The ring, the ring teams back then, we weren't as talented, so we generally have to. I always think of like playing as there are three tanks. There's like the physical tank, the emotional, and the psychological, and we generally weren't talented enough where we could just deplete those equally. So generally, we would have to come up with ways to outmaneuver other teams because you know the Bay Area back then, people moved to Boston, people moved to San Francisco, Seattle, like life happens. Not many people back then were moving to Raleigh to the job market wasn't, I mean, Raleigh's growing now and there are, we actually get people like Goose and, and players that move here because universities and, and other, other real life things that help, help grow personal and character and, and just professionally. Yeah. So I don't, we generally would come up with any sort of way to get ourselves prepared. We always had this kind of like, we were a proud blue collar ultimate team and we would, we would kind of just use any little thing to drain the kind of fill up the emotional and psychological tank if we had to we always had this us against the world mentality everyone everyone thinks they're better than us but we'll show them which you know ring has a little bit now still but it's it's always more amusing to me because i mean they they're pretty stacked compared to what we were they have so much more experience we still had guy we had a guy on our team that couldn't throw a forehand back then <laughs> but he was athletic though yeah i mean so we we really had to like push the advantages, find every little nuance and opportunity to gain advantage. And so I, I don't think, I think they probably did view, because I think maybe change, there were some some good teams on our side. And I, probably if I were looking as they were, you'd probably want to choose us of the options. Totally fair. And as you're talking about Ring's legacy and, and what Ring has done, you actually decide to uh, jump ship, so to speak, and head I guess, uh, would it be north, northwest a little bit there to Colorado, playing with a really stacked and uh, a super fun team to watch and just a lot of star power on that uh, 2014 Johnny Bravo team. They took on Toronto Goat in the semis, which was a great game to watch. I remember being excited that Goat had upset Revolver in the quarterfinals of that same tournament. So you go and win nationals with Johnny Bravo, your first and only uh, national title there in the Open Division at USA Ultimate National Championships. So what made you decide to go play for Johnny Bravo? I'm not sure if you were practicing with them or just kind of picking up because you were probably still in Raleigh at the time. In 2013, I was on the World Games team. I don't really have much connection with that team. Most most people knew each other, had some sort of connection. I I was kind of, I felt like an odd man out. It was a sweet group. I, I love everyone on the team. But so I, I met like Ryan Farrell and George Stubbs and those guys. I mean, I played against them, but I wouldn't say we had any relationship they were just part of the faceless mob of people we had to take down. And generally, I knew that I was finishing my doctorate at NC State and so that I potentially was moving. Uh, at that point, when I basically had applied to jobs in Boston, I applied for a job in Kansas City. I was applying to jobs anywhere to just kind of start my career. And I basically applied. I flew up to Boston and tried out for Ironside. And I flew out to, uh, the, I mean, George and, and Ryan both talked to me about playing. And so basically, yeah, I flew out to Bravo tryouts because I ended up realizing I'm moving to Kansas City. So they're actually a pretty close team. I don't know if you ever interviewed Ryan Farrell. He was a, he's a pretty intense guy, very fiery, comes from a, like a lacrosse background. But one of the things uh, when we were like on Team USA for the World Games team is he, he admitted that he'd never seen a team that kind of just bought in and like looked after each other and cared more about like the hangout, as we called it than about just having to win. And so I feel like he he like matured through that experience. Obviously, Ryan's an ext just extraordinary player, great defender, stand-up dude. And so yeah, I was like, went out there. It was just a fun time. Like after practice, the team hangs out. I was always kind of goofy. I would like try and get him to play wiffle ball. So in most tournaments after after the day ended, we'd go get like a game of wiffle ball on like eight on eight, whoever was in. And it usually it was like my team versus Owen Westbrook's team. That guy is good. Ryan was good. I mean, there were, there were actually a number of, of pretty good wiffle ball players. <laughs> when you won the national title there, 
Yeah, what was your first thought when you realized, hey, like, as you mentioned earlier in the interview, you said you just wanted to play with these guys and, and kind of be at nationals. But now you're actually winning the whole tournament. So what was that like uh, for you personally? It was it was kind of bittersweet. I really enjoyed the team. Bravo was pretty awesome. It was just, it was like one of those times, I'll be honest, when I made the 2013 World Games team, I was kind of dumbfounded. I, I got invited to tryouts. I've never necessarily thought of myself as that great of a player. I just figured I'd try hard. Generally, most things, I, I just am going to try and outwork those around me. I don't I don't have the physical stature. I, I'm not particularly good at anything. I'm just, just going to give it my best. And uh, so when I made the team, I was pretty shocked. <laughs> and through that experience was interesting, though, because I never think of myself as a great player. But then you see people talk about it. Like my friends and them are like, oh, yeah, you deserve this. That's so awesome. Congrats. And then you always hear other people, though, that are like, uh, like he got lucky or he paid the coaches off. And I, I kind of learned that no matter what you do, the people that kind of have your back are going to have your back. And the people that are like the haters, as it were, quote unquote, reason to not really think that you earned it, believe in it. And so it's like that experience from making that team and realizing there's still all these people that I could read things online. They're like, oh, that Brett guy sucks. I'm like, I mean, maybe. <laughs> I'm sure you can make an argument for it. I, I, I always joke that you can learn more about someone else by asking them a question than, than yourself in the terms of like, if I ask you, Theo, you know, who are your top five handlers? You could name like Brody, you might name me, you might, you know, but I learn more about what you value from that than anything. It's like, oh, you know, maybe you value give go handlers. You're like, I like Gooch. I like these guys. Oh, that makes sense. Or like, you like Hucking. So you're, you're going to pick Brody. You're going to pick like, Ashlyn. And so yeah, it's not that I feel like you obtain information about their their set of values, their set of constraints than you do anything. And so I was like, there's no like it doesn't matter. I'm not, I'm not gonna be someone else. I'm not gonna just become this player. And if I did, maybe they'd respect me, but that's that doesn't work well for me. And so joining that Bravo team, it was just it was about the hangout, like the wiffle ball, it was about hanging out with the boys and just I always make this metaphor that when I go to Frisbee, I like to think of my teams as my troop carrier going on to Normandy. We're going to storm the beach and we really have no idea what's going to happen, man. Like that gate's going to go down and there's just going to be chaos. And like, maybe we don't make it through. I, I don't know, but I want to know that everyone in that uh, transport, when the gate goes down, they're just with me and we're, we're going, we're just, we're going to run. Maybe we make it, maybe we don't, but like, I'm happy to be there with them. And so Bravo was like, it was one of those experiences of that. Uh, when I left Ring, Ian Toner knows this, but one of the reasons I actually did choose to try and not be like a travel player was after we lost in 2013, not many, like probably no one knows this, but we were at the party and some of the guys were pretty down. It was the first time we didn't make quarters. It was pretty devastating. 2013 was not a good year for my life. And I, I tried to really put everything into Frisbee. And so it was a pretty devastating loss as well. And so I was trying to cheer up the guys and just, some of the some of my close friends were on the team. I, I liked, you know, I was friends with most pretty much everyone, and some of them were really close friends. And like Ian Toner was pretty upset, so I was trying to cheer him up. And I, I remember being like, you know, it's, it's my fault, man. Like, I should have played better. I, I let the team down, and some teammates overheard it and actually came over and kind of cursed me out about how it was my fault. And I was like, oh, that that sucks. I was probably a moment where I realized okay, I guess I am the problem and maybe maybe it's time to move on. So I, I, at the time I was trying to consider if I could move and still play, like how would that work? And that was kind of, that was the moment where I realized, oh, maybe the team's better off without me. Maybe that I, I am the problem. And so the Bravo win was interesting because it was, it was like a foray into a whole new world. I, I don't know how to describe when you played with one team your whole life. I've, I've always been super loyal. Not that it shows. I get made fun of for being like a mercenary now. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you're, uh, as we mentioned there in the vial, you played for a few different teams. And it's because uh, you then go play for Machine uh, for two years and then you're back again with Ring of Fire. So can you talk about the thought process of, uh, of jumping teams there? If, uh, yeah, if you could. Yeah, so I, I plan to stay. So the, the funny cascade of teams, I, I enjoyed Bravo. The win was bittersweet. The reason it was so weird is because you win this thing and it's just over. It's hard to reflect and realize that this moment is gone. And like this group of guys, 
even if we return next year, it's going to be a whole new experience. And it was like, it was sad to see it end because you want, you just want, I just want to keep playing. Let's just play another game. Hey, maybe we don't even, let's just play the next game. The next game, maybe we lose one. We don't, but that's cool. We're, we're still in it together. So it was like, it was sad to see it leave. I planned to return to Bravo. I just planned to keep playing for Bravo. I started a serious relationship with a, a woman at the children's hospital I was working at. So for AUDL, I've become good friends with Goose from the Beach Worlds in 2015. You have your agent, your agents right there giving you information. That's good <laughs> yeah. stuff. So we'd become good friends from that. And so he was, he, this is, I don't think he remembers this and Bob always makes fun of him as well. But he, he, he basically was like, oh, Wildfire is one player away from winning and we could, we could really do it if you join. And so I was like, well, I, I don't have a team. I'm, <laughs> Ken Sidious doesn't have anything. If they're, they're willing to like fly me up and everything, I, I'll play. And so I ended up playing for Wildfire. And basically I was gone, I think 20 of 22 weeks straight. I would just fly up to Chicago, fly. It was just a lot. And so she was pretty unhappy with me being gone, which is, she kind of made it clear. She doesn't really want me playing for Bravo and flying to Denver for the rest of the year. And so that's kind of why I had a, a stint with Prairie Fire. It, it was a weird life decision. I decided for once I would try not to put Frisbee first and put other things. And then we broke up maybe like a month into the season, which is why I then jumped over to Chicago. I, I told basically Bravo, I mean, I told them basically that I'm going to try and put this relationship first. They actually met her. So they kind of understood. I, I was sad about it because like I said, I don't, I don't generally like to switch teams. I like, I like storming that beach, man. And so Goose and them throughout, because they knew that the, the relationship had some, some things we we're trying to work out. And so Goose, I remember at a tournament we played machine when I was on Prairie Fire. And he, after the game, I think texted me a, a picture of a jersey with my number on it for machine and something of like, there's still time. <laughs> and then I think we broke up like literally that week. So he's a prophet is what you're saying. I was pretty devastated. I was like, oh, geez, I'm, I don't know anyone on Prairie Fire particularly well. It's not like we're, you know, they're not, they weren't my boys. And uh, they were great though. I, again, I have nothing bad to say. I, like Kaplan Mara was on that team. I thought he was phenomenal. Abe is just a great player, a good dude. He wasn't generally at practices, so I never even met him. Jay Frude was as good. I mean, Weimer, Barrett, uh, Peter Matolko is just a solid guy. So, like, I had great things to say about them, Joe Young, but it was just, they're definitely their own community. And I respected the fact that they, they'd kind of brought themselves, it was like old ring, that they had this system and this way that they play. I didn't necessarily love it. And I was kind of like fighting them a bit to like, hey, we should, we should push to play more like this because I think we'll find more success. And then I was kind of, once we broke up, I realized I just made a mistake. I immediately regret this decision. <laughs> no, but I, yeah, I just, I texted Goose and I was like, I, um, I need to be with, with some friends. I just need to be with people that I think care about me. And uh, so he's like, dude, we will take you. And I, I did what I needed to, to survive. <laughs> Because it was, it was a bit of a, a rough breakup. So yeah, that was the, the impetus for joining Machine. There was no, there was nothing more than I'd spent a lot of time with Goose for Beach and I uh, got to know Bob. We played Wildfire. There weren't many Machine guys there, but it just seemed like I also just wanted to not be in Kansas City. And so yeah, it was a, it was a good fit. Basically from there, I think the reason I returned to Ring was I just, I moved back to Raleigh for a job. Goose and Bob, basically we all moved here together. And so it was just kind of a natural fit, kind of prodigal son trying to return, seeing what it would be like. And the, I mean, the team's, team's full of great guys. I would say that's probably the point where I realized that I think everyone on the team that I started off on ring with were gone. There was not a single player from my first year still on the team, I believe. And it was like, I would say that's been the challenge from then on is realizing that most of the people that I've grown to like, build meaningful relationships and like share this incredible bond from Frisbee have retired. And, uh, and that's, that kind of was the reason I, I went to temper. I just wanted to play with, a, you know, similar to the machine thing. I just wanted to go and play with a really good friend. I, it was like, I don't really care how we do. I just want to go and just be with, with someone that they, they understand me. The ring team in 2017, like they were, they were young. They were all kind of UNC or, TYUL kids and they're you know Gooch is amazing he's a good dude after practice I would try and get guys to come out to lunch and goof around but generally you know there just wasn't that they they have their boys and uh 
I just I felt like an outsider and that was that was just it's about rough experience I mean I know like Henry Fisher now pretty well Elijah Long is just I can't say I have anything bad to say I wouldn't say I have hard feelings or anything. it's just like you can tell it's 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 their time their crew and uh so I mean Ty D was another Tyler D and I have actually been pretty great friends he joined DC Breeze in 2014 when I joined that was back seven years ago but I mean he was winning those national titles with Pitt and he's a he's kind of an introvert so he came to practice and uh he was on the O-line with with Alex Thorne they're like they're besties they're inseparable but generally we practice do something scrimmage and he, he would pretty much just go kind of like keep to himself so at practice I would just mark him at like end zone and goof around and just talk smack to him trying to get him out of his shell and mess with him because I mean he's he's way better than me <laughs> it's a terrible matchup really but I would I would like shut him down quote unquote in an end zone basically because we both stood out of the way and they scored somewhere else and I was like you just don't have it in you do you, you can't take me on so we feel like I broke down his wall and we became good friends and uh I tried to get him to play ring in 2018 for world clubs it kind of fell apart on the 11th hour it sounded like I tried to get him to join machine in 2016 I've always been just like dude I, I don't let's just hang out he was he was always a good friend and so yeah I basically I didn't know what to do I just wanted to play with just have fun and play with a friend again him and I talked and I, I basically joined temper just to play with him since I he played maybe 11 points the whole season ended up moving to Boston pretty early on and like I don't know if he attended practice whenever I was I don't think I ever saw him at a practice or anything cool story though and Brian it sounds like for you as much as you've transitioned teams and things like that something you value from ultimate is not just the playing opportunities but it's also the relationships that you've made would that be accurate that that's something you probably value more than just the the winning and, and being successful yeah to be like pretty genuine and authentic early on just like anything, there's that that need to like prove yourself to validate the fact that you're pouring so much into something that you want you want to see some tangible output, right? Like if I clean my house for an hour, I get an hour's worth of clean out of it. If you do research, you don't necessarily get that. My job is in research, and uh, I could spend a week and get no progress. So so I definitely value like early on. I wanted I wanted to try and win. I wanted to make nationals. Like bam, that would be an amazing life achievement and like did it. And then it's like, I want to win. I want to make these teams as you like, I've won some stuff. And I realized that you win this meaningful tournament. If you're not doing it with the people you care about, if you're not storming Normandy with, with the guys you want to be there with, it's like, what's this even mean? So I, I've won things where we get a trophy and I'm like, all right, cool. Well, thanks. And just like walk away people might be like, oh, you won that? I was like, all right, yeah, I guess I did. It, it didn't really mean anything. And I've won like one of my probably top five favorite wins is just winning Raleigh Winter League because it was with it was with a group of people who've been playing for 10 or 15 years. None of them ever won. And, you know, it's just cool to like to help elevate others and kind of lift, lift them up and see them win something that I don't, I don't think anyone would ever put Raleigh Winter League as a life achievement in their Frisbee career. But dude, you know, some of those guys, they just, they deserve it. They, They've been grinding for 10 years is what you're saying. So winning, uh, what's it called? Fool's Fest in maybe 2012 or something with Garrett Dyer. He'd been playing that tournament for 12 or 13 years and never won. Being on the team that finally broke through, hitting that threshold. It was like, this isn't that meaningful of a tournament. We played, I think we played metal, the old nationals team. We played like truck stop some sort of culmination and we you know they're good teams you have to beat along the way but it's meaningful because of the people you're doing it with were and like that's what I started to value as well you're like I, I want to be with the people I care about and and build meaningful relationships even if even if maybe we don't become best friends it's like I want to know about your life I want to make sure you're okay like if you need something I want to be there and like maybe I'm not the first person you turn to but I want you to know that I am someone down the list, I could be N minus one person you turn to. And like, I will be there. We're, we're friends. Like Frisbee is, is a silly game. We, we run around and do, but, but life's about these relationships. It's about, you know, I'm a, I'm a religious dude. I believe in Jesus. And I feel like, you know, that's, those are his basically fundamentals, right? When he's tested by the Pharisees, it's like, what's the most important commandment? It's like, love God above all else and love your neighbor as thyself. And I'm like, 
yeah, like at the end of the day, we're all we're all people, and uh, that's it's kind of what matters. Love that. And the last thing I'll ask about sort of your journey there is you talked about some accomplishments and how some of them might not mean as much to you just because of the people that you're a part of. But what about the 2016 gold medal representing USA in a true world cycle? You actually had to make the team, right? It wasn't just like 2012 where Revolver, for the most part, represented the U.S. Open team, right? So it was a little different now and things have changed uh, in the U.S. for the selection. So what was that like playing on the mixed team and obviously doing really well and winning the gold medal there? <laughs> it was super fun. Everyone was so together. It was, it was, again, it's like the ideal experience. You have basically everyone, you never have to question anyone's commitment, the level of effort they're going to put in. You're just, to me, like the U.S. teams aren't as much about training and getting the tactics right. It's just about getting like the off-field stuff together. Because if you if you get everyone to bond and buy in, the talent is so high. They're, they have the talent to win. So it's just getting everyone to buy in. So like for Beach Worlds, we'd always like have training weekends, but we'd we'd always have a lot of outside the field activities. We're going to a karaoke bar. We're going to go like do this. And we're going to make sure we just, we love each other. And then like the practice the next day, everyone's pushing each other. They're helping each other up. They're calling out sick plays. Like, ah, you got that, man. That was a great team. I, I hate you for it, but I, I'm going to push you in this next point. Well, like, and the mixed team was no different. It's just a great group of people that really wanted to be there. For me personally, it was, it was really bittersweet. I don't, I don't like playing against past teams. So I know the year that Machine made semis, we had to play Bravo in pre-quarters and ring in quarters. It was pretty disheartening. I, I don't like, I love those guys. I, I want them to win. <laughs> and uh, I played basically my best friend in the finals, John McNaughton. Oh, that must be hard because you wrenched him earlier. Yeah, Tom Regaki, I've played against him over and over in Australia. So I, I knew a bunch of those guys and women. And uh, to be honest, like, don't tell the coaches. But when we were having lunch, I would sit with John. And I generally, before the game, I was like, here's how you beat us. And I coached him. <laughs> yeah, make sure uh, the USA coaches there don't uh, don't hear that. Their uh, internal sabotage, it sounds like there, Brett. That's uh, pretty funny. <laughs> I mean, after the game, I don't know if they, if you see the video, you might notice it. I think the o-line scored the last point while the team like ran to celebrate i actually went over to john and hugged him and he's my best friend and i i was you know i I generally want the people around me to succeed i generally benefit from from great players so like the mixed team i i mean they they were phenomenal canner i mean khalif becky malinowski i mean i love finney she's the best and it's like i i just kind of rode their coattails and it was pretty legit i mean they're they're good people they work hard. I mean, Mazer is super goofy, uh, low scoring, <laughs> silly lefty. I was just there to, to stay out of the way, let them do cool stuff, and then basically give them high fives and tell them, keep it up. You guys win it, and I'll uh, take the medal. <laughs> <laughs> That's totally fair. I like the humility, though. That's good stuff. And uh, we'll transition here to day-to-day life, probably a little bit of a shorter segment for today. What's your life look like, obviously, with COVID? Uh, there was no... Uh, club season in 2020 there so what has your life been like uh with COVID are you still training for ultimate are you uh I don't want to say the word but retiring or I know you played some masters as well with uh Boneyard in 2018 in the world ultimate club masters championships I guess so what's the next thing for for Brett Matsuka there what are you doing kind of uh in your daily life uh with ultimate if anything at all daily life with ultimate yeah I still I still train like it's the season I don't know how to stop (laughs) Probably like Goose. I know Goose still trains like five days a week. Oh, yeah. I see it on his Instagram. Yeah. I kept training because uh, I, I don't know how to stop. I, I still want to play a few more years, so I'm not retiring. If, as long as people are willing to take me and I can feel like I influence the outcome of the game, I'll keep playing. The second that I, I feel like I'm not an asset, I'm not at least helping in some way, I'll probably retire. Generally, teams, for some reason, still take a chance, like Minnesota last year for AUDL. I don't putting new tennis balls on my walker, so hopefully that will help keep me going. But <laughs> training's been up and down. It's hard to, to keep pushing yourself to the level that I want to. Generally, most weeks, I've been able to keep, keep lifting hard. There's been a week here or there where I'm a little down. So like, uh, I'm training for what? <laughs> for nothing. Usually get the motivation back. Find, find some some reason to to keep going and uh because i reached out to a few friends and some of them i found out were retiring and those are weeks that i i've been 
been pretty devastated and training took a hit when I reached out to someone like, dude, we should, we should do this. And then they're like, yeah, I think I'm, I think I'm done. I'm like, I'll play mixed with you. Let's play mixed. What, what about this? Like, no, I'm, I'm, I think I'm good. I'm like, oh, and then, uh, supposed to lift that night. I'm like, so then you lose motivation is what you're saying. But what are the goals left there for Brett Matsuka? We'll wrap this part up. What are the goals that you have left that you want to accomplish in the game? Or is it maybe just playing with uh, more people that you can storm the beaches in Normandy with, as you uh, suggested earlier? Meeting people, hopefully being able to help them out in, in life. Like sports reveals character, your ability to persevere. You know, there's always like the asterisk win, quote unquote. But literally, you can always put an asterisk, right? Uh, like our team wasn't operating in the most ideal situation. So like part of the idea of competition is that there are always going to be uncontrollables and challenges that you can't account for and then finding ways to persevere. And like, that's how you build these, forge these meaningful bonds is, is building, getting respect, obtaining that from teammates because you're willing to do what's necessary for them and showing that selflessness through like physical endeavor. And then realistically, that's how you build a relationship that then, you know, in life, you find out that, oh, maybe, maybe this person's having a hard time or they they got fired. It's like, oh, well, they're willing to now discuss real meaningful things with me because they, they trust me and I can maybe like pay rent for them. And like, that's sweet. Like I said, that's kind of what it's about. And then seeing them succeed. And that's awesome too, because you get to see that growth and maturity and, uh, and success. And it's, it's a cool thing to, to kind of witness and experience. Yeah, for sure. Uh, lots of good stuff there, Brett, and appreciate you sharing all that and giving us insight into why you play the game Ultimate as well. So we're going to dip back into the archives here, and we're going to talk about your favorite and least favorite games that you've ever played. So uh, we'll start with your favorite game. What's the, the best game you've ever played? That is actually a hard one. I, I know some of my least favorite games. <laughs> yeah, do you want to start with that one then? <laughs> yeah, I would say there are, there are a handful Probably my least favorite was the semifinals in Beach Worlds in 2015. I played the Philippines. I, I, I was a selector for the beach team. I was a captain that year. I played the Philippines a lot, and they're, they're a great group of dudes. I always love them because I see myself in them. They're generally shorter and quicker, counted out because of their physical stature. I'm like, no, oh, respect. I, <laughs> I can relate, and you guys are awesome. So I played them at nearly, I think, every Beach Worlds. And, multiple times sometimes and and sadly I, I think I've always beat them it's like a match you look forward to knowing that it's going to be a wild ride you can't predict the outcome but you know they're going to give you everything you have they have and you're going to like walk away appreciating whatever happens you have no doubt that you you participate in a great match and then if you won it was because you actually you earned it it was a super windy game it was weird because it generally, it was the first time where I felt like another team just felt like they deserved to win. And they were, there were some questionable calls. We'd have a spirit circle. I, I don't feel like I did a good job as a leader, keeping my composure, being someone to, to really lead the team. I feel like I really faltered and failed there. And that was pretty discouraging. We had an experienced team that, that pulled through, but it was, it was weird to see a group of guys you can always kind of look up to and respect. And it, and it felt, personally, it felt like, I know their training was the most intense they've ever been through. And it, it was a little bit of this feel that they've worked too hard to not win. So like, they'll just call travel on Mario. You are know, like you're calling travel on a backhand in sand, like two or three times in a row. Like that was a bit weird. A lot of it has to do with just my reaction. I was pretty disappointed in myself. I, I thought I did a poor job. That was a rough one. I would say another, another rough game was, was in a, I think a sectional final at NC State in maybe 09, where there were no observers and we we're playing UNCW in the final and they they were just blatantly cheating. <laughs> that one was frustrating because we just we couldn't win. There was a game against Toronto GOAT, which was similar, where we would throw goal after goal and they would just call stuff. And again, it was the same thing where one of them admitted, he's like, You're you're not gonna score. <laughs> we're gonna keep calling it because they were upset about a call we had. So it's like, oh yeah, I guess. I guess this is where we're at. <laughs> Perhaps one of the downfalls of a uh, self-officiated sport there. We'll discuss actually in the rapid fire, but do you have your uh, favorite game there that you uh, remember playing or remember fondly? I have a lot of games that I look forward to or I, I enjoyed. I feel like the, 
the semifinal of US Open in 2016 with Machine was fun, but I didn't take it as seriously as I probably should have. I remember Jenny Faye telling me early in the first half that she had an over-under bet on number of upside-down throws I would throw in the game. And basically on the sideline told me that I need like two or three more. And I think there's a point in there where I throw back-to-back scubers. <laughs> and that was just basically because she she told me she needed that. I mean, that was a fun game. They're like meaningful games. Winning Beach Worlds in 2011 was just an extremely meaningful game. I mean, winning 07 with the Australian team. A lot of those guys were Brisbane players. It's hard to like pin it to a favorite because they're just a lot of meaningful, meaningful games. <laughs> yeah, you've had a long career there, Brett, so it's all good. And uh, last segment here, some rapid fire. We're going to start with some ultimate questions first. First question here, which throw do you prefer, your flick or backhand? I think people would say my backhand is better. But what do you prefer, though? Not what you're good at. What do you prefer? I think I prefer my flick. And uh, what about uh, some upside-down throws here? Your hammer or your scuba? Again, that's like a weird one because I think my hammer is the only throw that, even when it's windy, doesn't change. Probably my most reliable, but I prefer probably the scuba. (laughs) Nice. As a handler there, Brett, probably done this, but... Uh, or maybe you haven't, and you have a perfect record. But would you rather drop a pull or drop a catch in the end zone? I've definitely done both. I mean, I think I'd rather drop a pass in the end zone, especially if it's like at the cone, because the probability of getting the disc back is pretty high. <laughs> That's fair, yeah. All about the probabilities. What about, uh, you've won a gold at Nationals, but pretend you didn't. So you can only win five straight silver medals or one gold. Which are you going to choose? I feel like probably the silvers, because I, I feel like I'm going to, I'm going to have a good experience with those teammates. Like the fact that we keep grinding to get there, I feel like we're going to have, we're going to have a good bond. I know that's probably weird because most people want to win, but five silvers, I mean, it'd be a little sad as well, but I feel like that team, we're going to be freaking hungry to keep playing together. And I like that. Sustained excellence in some ways as well. With the sport, uh, of course, being the name ultimate, do you think that that name should be renamed to something else? I'm indifferent. Flat ball, I thought was kind of cool when it got popular in like the 2000s. It did. Flat ball. I love, I love the name flat ball personally. So uh, I don't know if it could go mainstream though, Brett. I don't know if people would be like, hey, I'm watching flat ball on ESPN or like CBS or Fox, but could be the case. What about uh, what you mentioned earlier with some of the, the cheeky calls and in, uh, in some big games there with no observers and you've played with referees. So do you think ultimate in general should have referees no i actually i'm a certified observer and i observed quite a bit i i like the observer system it's really pretty robust i mean there are many games where i've had observers we've cordially worked everything out ourselves like very respectfully i i would say the vast majority of games i've been pretty happy to just i mean i've had plays with a defender where maybe i've gone up for a disc and they've they've like pretty slammed into me and maybe it tipped off my fingers and I call foul and I basically tell the defender to contest it. Cause I'm like, you know what? I don't, I can't say with hundred percent confidence, I was going to catch that without the contact, but I do know that the contact definitely affected the catch. But I think I'm, I just turned to him like I'm calling foul, but I, I respect that you should contest because I think it's a, it's too important of a play for, I, I like being able to have that. And generally I think whenever I've had those conversations, they've gone well. So, yeah, I like the self-refereeing. That's uh, definitely cool there. And what kind of games or tournaments have you observed? Is it more at the college level then because you're playing at the club level? (laughs) I've I've observed club. I observed, I think, the 2014 Chesapeake final. And I remember both teams giving me a hard time throughout because they figured that I was going to somehow cheat for the rankings for Bravo. But I did a lot of women's games generally during that tournament because I was an active player in the Open Division. And I've done a lot of college. I generally did Easterns nearly every year, Queen City. I mean, I have a lot of conflicts of interest, as it were. So I'm, I'm not supposed to observe like NC State because I went there. Yeah, I could see I could see that causing some trouble there, Brad, if uh, you're um, observing your alma mater there. So that doesn't make sense. Last one here for the ultimate related questions. Should ultimate continue to pursue its place in the Olympic Games? I mean, odd man out, but not really. I maybe have a hot take in that I don't really care about third-party validation. I played well before there was any anyone that knew anything about it, right? No media, 
and I would happily go to the middle of the country where no one was and still play a tournament with like five or six of the top players and teams rather than have some sort of weird media deal where some person that doesn't really play any sports tells me what I did was meaningful or not. And I'm like, I personally don't really care if we play in the Olympics. I don't, I don't care if we're on ESPN. Like some person down the road having an opinion about whether what I do is athletic, quote unquote, or a competition or a real sport, they're entitled to their opinion. I respect it regardless. And it doesn't really change the fact that I enjoy what I do and, and get a, a lot of meaningful experiences out of it. <laughs> yeah, that could also relate as well, Brett, to your experiences in the pre-media days, right? When no one uh, seemed to care and there was like no coverage and, you know, there weren't live streams, like multiple games around at club nationals and things like that. So it does make sense. Now some non-sports questions. Since you listened to Goose's episode, you probably know what's coming. But the first one being, you can share a meal with three people in the course of human history. They can be living or brought back from the dead. So who would you choose to have this meal with? Now, this is the one I thought a lot about already, and I still don't really have a great answer because I was going to ask you some questions about whether they, they could be fictional or not. Yeah, I mean, if you want to throw a fictional person in there, you can. That, that's fine. Because I feel like two of them are easy, and it's maybe similar to Goose. I'd, I'd pick my man Jesus because, like, you got to gonna know man whether you uh believe in jesus at all like he definitely walked the earth that's historically accurate and it gotta meet him i feel like it'd be amazing and uh i feel like number two would be paul and again very biblical i just <laughs> similar thing i mean he wrote so many letters and and kind of spread the word of the church i feel like it, he'd be an interesting dude to talk to it's like oh you went from persecuting and, and killing these people to a member i feel like it's you know, like one of those people on Twitter that makes one of ultimate all the time becoming the leading evangelist of making it an Olympic sport. And then uh, the third one is hard because I'm like, ah, oh, if we could have a fictional character. And I feel like Jack Black would be fun. And there's not really any reason other than I think he's a phenomenal musician that doesn't take himself too seriously. I like Paul Rudd. <laughs> fictional characters. They're just there's so many like pretty entertaining ones. So Jack Black's character from like School of Rock or something. Dude, yeah, I mean, that would be, I, I just, I love goofballs that generally don't, don't take anything too seriously, which maybe is polarizing to my career and things, but I, I just, I like just genuine, authentic people that just live in the moment, try and enjoy anything they can. And I feel like Jack Black's just a, a quality dude, and especially at dinner, right? Like we have Jesus and Paul here and they're, they seem like pretty, I mean, Paul was you know, some of his writings are about how, like, if you go by the Pharisees' teachings, he's, like, the best of the best. So he's, like, a current academic. And then we have, like, Jack Black over there going, like, beat it about that. I'm like, oh, yeah. The conversations would be all over the place. I feel like Jesus would probably be great at anything, you know, but maybe that's my personal vibe. He could just, like, him and Jack Black riff and just dump on Paul a lot, and we get, we get to, like, teaming up on, on paying people out and making jokes. Or... Or maybe like it's just really academic and uh, Jack Black, probably smart guy. And we just were talking about, you know, physics, high level mathematics, maybe like solving Navier-Stokes equation for computational fluid dynamics and how to come up with a closed form solution. Who knows? Yeah, no clue what you just said there, Brett, but uh, sounds very academic there. <laughs> so this question is right up your alley, though, because you love music. So your backyard in Raleigh, if you have one, is going to be the site of your own concert. You can pick three bands or artists, broken up, dead, or still going on. And you got to pick the order, though, in which they play. I feel like I have to go Mozart. I feel like I'm going to I'm gonna warm up with Mozart, which is maybe maybe disrespectful, and I apologize to him. He, he's pretty great, though, so I don't think he even cares about my opinion. So that's that's probably works out best. I feel like the Beatles is just, I wasn't ever like even a huge Beatles fan, but they're amazing. And that's just respect. And then it's like, do you go Lil Dicky just because? I don't think so. I think I'm going to go Counting Crows and I may regret it. I'm going to probably call you back like, ah, train wreck. <laughs> oh, it's all good. It's all good. It's your concert. I like the eclectic mix too as well. And last question of the rapid fire. Can't choose ultimate as the answer for this question. So you're going to get all the talent in the world in another sport. Uh, it could be individual or team. And if it's a team sport, you can pick the position and team you play for. So what would you choose? This is hard. 
I was a huge tennis player. I mean, it's like Team USA Davis Cup doubles, maybe. All right. Maybe go to Wimbledon or something, Australian Open, right? Roland Garros. I love basketball. I've been playing a lot of basketball before COVID, like this invite league. I always like to try and come up with comparisons of who I'd be in in basketball. And uh, it changes year to year. I love Chris Paul. He's a short little smart point guard that makes plays happen. And I like to believe I'm him, but I feel like deep down, I'm, I'm probably like one of those guys in the G League. Alex Caruso is my boy lately. Yeah, of course. Everyone's on the hype of the Alex Caruso there, the Lakers. He's just a try hard, but he's, he's good. So maybe, maybe like point guard, probably, I, I mean, I was, I was good at tennis. I feel like doubles tennis was my jam. I'll stick with that. All right. Sounds good. So Brett, love the conversation we had today. Just a lot of information about your life in ultimate and just learning about your heart of why you play ultimate as well. It's kind of cool to be able to hear that and to be able to hear stories of different people in the ultimate world. So Brett, thank you for coming on for audience wants to find out more about you. Can they find you online anywhere? Or are you uh, kind of an enigma? You're not on social media or, or what's that look like? I don't really social media. I don't find it's uh, like a fruitful endeavor. I will say if people really want to contact me, I, I am genuine that I'm, I'm here to help anyone however I can. My phone number is 808-896-9965. So like feel free to text or call. Probably text. I'm more responsive to that generally. And like, I'm happy to hear from anyone. My, my email address is just my full name at gmail.com. And again, I'm, if someone's just down, you just need someone to talk to, feel free to reach out. You know, I, I won't say I'll respond quickly because I'm, I'm the worst, but I do promise to respond. I don't check Facebook pretty much ever. I'm pretty sure I have a page there. My Instagram is goose00helton, I think. So goose00helton, Twitter. He, he's on the social media. Uh, I don't know if he has Twitter, but he definitely does have Instagram. Follow him there. But uh, yeah, if you want to talk with Brad, and, and obviously he has had some goofy answers, but also you can hear his heart for, for people as well. So if you want to reach out to him, I'll leave all that information in the show description. So Brett, thank you again for coming on the show all the way from Raleigh, North Carolina. Yeah, hopefully you can stay warm. Thanks for listening. Keep an eye out for the next episode where I interview Ari Nelson. Ari was part of Denver Molly Brown's 2020 season where they focused on activism, social justice, and equity efforts in their local community. She will finish her college career with the Northeastern Huskies and previously played for Boston Slow White and the USA U24 women's team. In this interview, Ari shares her experiences making an elite-level mixed team as an 18-year-old, her mental health journey, and the new website she helped found that is focused on helping the Ultimate community talk about mental health. As always, you can follow me on Instagram at Juan underscore and underscore only underscore sports, and you can check out some commenting highlights on YouTube at Juan and Only Sports. Catch you listeners on the flip side. Peace.